Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are kicking off a series in the book of Nahum, and today's teaching is entitled The Schadenfreude of Nahum. The book of Nahum is only three chapters, so let's dive right in to see what kind of book this is. Chapter 1, verse 1 reads, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and rages against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the bloom of Lebanon fades. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who live in it. Who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the heat of God's anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and by him the rocks are broken in pieces. The Lord is good, a stronghold on a day of trouble. He protects those who take refuge in him, even in a rushing flood. God will make a full end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Why do you plot against the Lord? God will make an end. No adversary will rise up twice. Like thorns they are entangled, like drunkards they are drunk, they are consumed like dry straw. From you one has gone out who plots evil against the Lord, one who counsels wickedness. So after the first 11 verses of the book of Nahum, something becomes quite apparent. And this something can be summed up in three words. God is angry. And as you continue to read through the book of Nahum, God does not relent from God's own anger according to this prophet. Throughout this entire book, God continues to stay angry. You can read about God's anger in chapter 2, verse 10, when Nahum says, Devastation, desolation, and destruction. Hearts faint and knees tremble. All loins quake. All faces grow pale. At this point, when I was reading the book of Nahum, I had to laugh a little at the phrase, all loins quake. Next time you are scared or are feeling uneasy about something, turn to the person next to you and say, man, my loins are quaking. Or don't. Please use discretion when using that phrase. But this continues on to the end of chapter 2 in verse 13 when we read, See, God says, I am against you, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. Chapter 3, the last chapter, verse 1 reads, Ah, city of bloodshed, utterly deceitful, full of booty, no end to the plunder. I am against you, says the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will let nations look on your nakedness and kingdoms on your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Then all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Now here in verse 7 of chapter 3, 
after reading about God's anger for the last two and a half chapters. I remember pausing and stopping on the name of the city that is being destroyed, Nineveh. Now, this name stuck out to me because at the very beginning of this book, chapter 1, verse 1, Nahum writes, an oracle concerning Nineveh. And after all of this anger, it is important to assess that God is angry. But God's anger is not some general anger toward all of humanity. Instead, God's anger is very focused. Specifically, God is angry with Nineveh. And this is why it's always important to read chapter 1, verse 1 of every book of the Bible. Someone could easily take the book of Nahum out of context and quote and tell you about how Nahum testifies that God is angry with you. But that's not what Nahum is writing about at all. Nahum believes that God is very angry with the city of Nineveh. And once we acknowledge the specificity of God's anger, we can ask a very important question behind the book of Nahum. Why is God angry with Nineveh? Or perhaps a better question is, why does Nahum believe that God is angry with Nineveh? This is an important question to ask and requires us to look through 500 years of Israelite history to understand why Nahum believes that God is angry with the city of Nineveh. So let's go back to the year 1025 BCE or somewhere around there when a man named Saul united the 12 tribes of Israel and became the nation of Israel's first king. Some decades later, a man named David rose up in power and overthrew Saul's regime after he was defeated in battle, and he became king of the nation of Israel sometime around the year 1000 BCE. Forty years later, after his death, David's son Solomon took the throne and led Israel into its greatest age of prosperity. There was material wealth and military might, and we would assume that people would love Solomon because he gave them a strong economy. But Solomon enslaved his own people to build up his own nation's wealth, which was not a very popular move with the people who identified as freed slaves. So much so that when Solomon's son Rehoboam took the throne after Solomon's death, there was a revolt by 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this revolt led to a separation of the nation. And the 10 tribes formed their own nation known as Israel to the north. And two tribes formed their own nation to the south known as Judah. Judah is where Jerusalem is today. And Judah continued to uphold the lineage of David on the throne while a man named Jeroboam took over the throne of Israel to the north. So Israel and Judah coexisted in very uneasy and at time tense and violent eras with each other. There were civil wars, there were tense alliances, there was backstabbing and betrayals and aid, and you can read about all of it for the next 200 years in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. Now it's important to remember when you read 1st and 2nd Kings is that it is the history of these separated nations entirely from the perspective of Judah. 
We don't have Israel's side of the story. And for that reason, when Judah writes about the kings of Israel, there were 19 of them, may I remind you. The people who are writing the history tell us that all of the kings of Israel were evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, of course they would be, because Israel revolted against Judah. So this history went on for nearly 200 years until 722 BCE, when a man named Hoshea was on the northern kingdom of Israel's throne, and David's descendant, a man named Ahaz, was on Judah's throne, which was the southern kingdom. Now, this came to an end in 722 BCE because at that time, an empire was rising in the north. That empire's name was Assyria. And the capital city of Assyria was the city Nineveh. If you want to answer the question, why does Nahum believe that God is angry with Nineveh? You can only understand the answer if you understand that Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Without that knowledge, none of Nahum's writings make any sense. Now, Nineveh was a prosperous city and at one point was the most populous city in the entire world, according to John J. Collins, who teaches at Yale University. So in 722, the Assyrian Empire launches an attack on the northern nation of Israel. Israel realizes that Assyria is about to attack them, and they turn to their southern neighbors of Judah and beg them to intervene and fight on their behalf. Judah refuses. Israel falls. Assyria shows up at the doorstep of Judah, and King Ahaz pleads for Judah's life. Judah submits to Assyria. The people of Judah are taxed by the Assyrian Empire going forward. But if this did not happen, if Ahaz went and fought with the nation of Israel, we most likely would have never had a Bible. 110 years later, after Ahaz submitted to the Assyrian Empire, it is the year 612 BCE. There is a descendant of David still on the throne in Jerusalem. His name is Josiah. Many consider him to be a great king. But also living in Judah in 612 BCE is a man named Nahum, who is a prophet wandering around somewhere in the countryside. Now, something very important happens in 612 BCE because there is not one empire, but there are two empires near the nation of Judah. The second empire that has risen from obscurity is the empire of Babylon. And in 612 BCE, Babylon launches an attack on Nineveh and defeats the Assyrian empire at the battle of Nineveh. Now Judah hears that Babylon has defeated the dominant military superpower of the day, which is Assyria, and the residents rejoice. And we can imagine that Nahum, being one of the residents, heard of the destruction of Nineveh and said, Yes, I love watching the destruction of Assyria. Now, in the English language, there is a word that is borrowed from the German language to describe what happens when someone experiences pleasure derived by another's misfortune. That word is schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, what a great word, right? 
Wherever you are, turn to the person next to you and say the word schadenfreude. If you're alone, just say it out loud. It's the word that needs to be spoken. Now, whether that's your first time saying that word out loud or it's your 1,000th time, we are all familiar with the practice of schadenfreude. To give you an example, think of the movie Aladdin, which is a Disney classic. One of the major themes of this story is that the genie is enslaved in the lamp and he wants nothing more than to be free. And because we are all anti-slavery as we watch this film, we root for the genie to be freed by the end of the movie's runtime. However, there is the villain Jafar who is a real menace to society. And Aladdin eventually tricks Jafar into using his final wish to become an all-powerful genie of the lamp, which in turn enslaves Jafar to a lamp, and he is then sent to the furthest corner of the earth. Now, what's interesting about this is I've never had the discussion with another human being that they are anti-slavery, so the ending of Aladdin bothered them because it ultimately sanctioned the sin of slavery as long as one deserved it. But we don't have those conversations because we enjoy Jafar's misfortune. That is schadenfreude. Another example is if you have ever been working on a group project in school. And this group project is a midterm group project and you know that you are doing more work than everyone else. Well, after the group project is turned in and you get a good grade on it, you feel the universe is unjust because the people who did nothing got the same grade as you. But the final project is not a group project. And you see your former group members turn in their projects and you think to yourself, oh, they're getting a bad grade. And rather than feeling bad for them, you actually enjoy it. That is schadenfreude. Have you ever been speeding down the road and somebody blows by you 30 miles an hour faster than you are going even though you're driving the speed limit? And 10 minutes later, you catch up to that person because they are pulled over by a police officer and you catch the glimpse of the person who is about to get a ticket and you see that they are sad with the sobering reality of the financial hardship they are going to face. And rather than feeling bad for them, you enjoy that they were caught. That is schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is whenever we derive pleasure by someone else's misfortune. And Nahum hears about the destruction of Nineveh and he loves it. So this short book filled with God's anger is the schadenfreude of Nahum toward the city of Nineveh. And we could almost sum up the entire book by saying, Dear Nineveh, God hates you, you deserve this pain, and I love it. Love, Nahum. Because the book of Nahum is a religious justification for the schadenfreude the people of Judah and Nahum specifically felt upon the destruction of Nineveh. So when we ask the question, why is God so angry with Nineveh, according to Nahum? The answer is that Nahum feels that Nineveh has finally gotten what it's deserved. And God's anger was unleashed on Nineveh for all of the crimes, sins, and terrors that Nineveh 
exacted on the rest of the world that Judah had to bear the brunt of. And so if you want to understand what the book of Nahum is about, it's about Nahum feeling good and feeling that the destruction of Nineveh is justified by God. Now, there are a number of lessons we could draw from the idea that God is angry with the oppressive nation and is on the side of those who are oppressed by larger empires. But this is not the end of the story of Nineveh in the Bible. Three to four hundred years after the destruction of Assyria in 612 BCE, there is a very different Judah who is barely surviving in 250 BCE. The empire at this time is the Greek Empire. And Judah does not have a king because that would be a rebellion against Greece. Now, sometime in this third century BCE, someone sat down and began to tell a story that revolved around a prophet named Jonah. Now, the story of Jonah is set 500 years before it was written in 750 BCE, back when there were still two nations, Israel and Judah, and there was the threat of the Assyrian Empire in 750 BCE. Now, this story unfolds when God speaks to Jonah and asks him to go to Nineveh to tell the Ninevites about their soon coming destruction unless they repent from their sins. Now, when Jonah hears these instructions from God, the listener or the reader would have immediately thought that Jonah is a prophet. This is important for us to understand because prophets were people who spoke on behalf of God. And when you consider that God is asking Jonah to go and speak specifically to Nineveh, there are really only two books of the Bible that revolve around the city of Nineveh. Jonah is one and the other is Nahum. And so Jonah is a fictional character that is meant to be a comical parody of the historical prophet Nahum. Lending to the comedy is the fact that God has this request of a prophet to go to Nineveh and Jonah says no. And Jonah tries to get to the end of the known earth by traveling to Tarshish, which is in modern day Spain. Now, you may know the story of Jonah, but on the way to modern-day Spain, there is a terrible storm that strikes the Mediterranean Sea while Jonah is on a boat. This storm is so bad that Jonah is eventually thrown overboard because the sailors assume that God is angry with Jonah. Upon hitting the water, the storm calms itself. The sea becomes glass, and a giant fish swims up and swallows Jonah whole, while Jonah lives in the stomach of that fish. Pretty exciting story if you've never heard it. <laughs> now, there is artwork that I've seen that shows Jonah cooking food in the belly of this fish. There's other artwork I've seen where Jonah's reading and writing in the belly of this fish, which seems very difficult given how dark it is down there. <laughs> you will also find pictures where there is a blowhole that is acting like a spotlight illuminating Jonah in the middle of this fish, while Jonah is praying. This is not anatomically correct, but it does re look rather good on paper, doesn't it? Jonah is eventually spit up by the fish onto land, and because Nineveh is a long way from the Mediterranean Sea, Jonah's got a long ways to walk. He eventually arrives in Nineveh and begins to preach that God is angry with them 
and that if they don't repent soon, God will destroy the city of Nineveh. Upon hearing of their imminent destruction, the city of Nineveh has a drastic change in heart. People begin wearing sackcloth and ashes. They say, we are sorry, God, we will change going forward. But Jonah has this sense that their repentance is not genuine. And so after preaching for several days, Jonah then goes up on a hill and waits for God to destroy the city of Nineveh because he is certain that the Ninevites are not genuine or sincere in their repentance. But after some time passes, it becomes clear to Jonah that God has a different assessment of the situation. And in the last chapter of the story of Jonah, chapter 4, Jonah is furious with God. Jonah says these words to God, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Jonah is furious with God because he knew all along that God was kind and forgiving. Jonah goes on to say in verse 3, And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than it is to live. There is then silence after Jonah says these words. And God recognizes that it's very hot where Jonah is. So God sends a bush to grow and give Jonah shade in the midst of his anger and his sweat. But after some time, Jonah does not change his heart. So God allows the bush to die. The death of this bush throws Jonah into overdrive. He says to God, it is better for me to die than to live. And this time, God answers back. God says, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? Jonah responds, yes, angry enough to die. There is a silence. And it's here that there are two verses left in Jonah's story. And these last two verses are the words of God to Jonah. God said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and many animals? And with that question, the book of Jonah ends. The author of Jonah wants the reader to ask a very important question. Doesn't God care about the Assyrians? Yes, this book was written several centuries after the end of the Assyrian Empire. But here are the people of Judah, under the rule of the Greek Empire, asking themselves the question, is God the God of all? Because if God is the God of all, then God is also the God of the Assyrian Empire. So when we feel that God was angry with them and justified their destruction... God justified the destruction of God's own people. And so if you could sum up the book of Jonah in a letter similar to what we did to Nahum at the beginning of this story, I believe that it would not be written to the people of Nineveh, 
because Nineveh wasn't still around in the time this book was written. But instead, it would be written to the people of Judah. And it would read something like this. Dear Judah, we were wrong. God is merciful even to our enemies. And when you contrast that with the idea behind Nahum, which is, Dear Nineveh, I hate you. God hates you. You deserve this pain. You realize that the purpose of the book of Jonah is to contradict the theology of Nahum. And I know a lot of Christians who will do whatever it takes to deny any contradictions within Scripture. They'll spend a lot of energy trying to tell you why the contradictions in the Bible aren't actually contradictions. Not only that, but skeptics, upon hearing believers' understanding of Scripture, see the contradictions as a way to undermine the authority or value of Scripture. But I have found that the greatest teachers within Scripture are the contradictions. And only when living in the tension between the dialogue can we see more clearly the presence of God. When we hold both of these books, Jonah and Nahum, together, the question that arises is, what do we do when it comes to national forgiveness? When another empire or nation has attacked or wronged us, how do we respond? Now, Jonah and Nahum both have very different answers. Nahum responds by saying that karma is real and the people in power will get what's coming to them eventually. Jonah responds by saying, can you humanize your enemies? And when you compare and contrast these two different books with very opposing theologies, it becomes more sense when you place them in the proper historical context. Nahum is much more of a visceral, quick reaction, right? The people of Judah were elated that the city of Nineveh was destroyed. Why? Because they had suffered at the hands of the oppressive power of the Assyrian Empire. So there was this rejoicing and relief as they realized they didn't have to suffer from the oppression of the Assyrians for any more time. Conversely, the wisdom in the book of Jonah is the result of three centuries of self-reflection. Now, just a reminder that Jonah was written three to four hundred years after the fall of Nineveh. This is longer than the United States of America has been an independent nation. And so Jonah, representing some movement within the people of Judah, represents that there is a real question as to how we should view the people who oppress us. And the author of Jonah believes that God is not the God of some, but that God is the God of all. And because of that, there are some serious implications in the way that we view the destruction and the devastation of our enemies. And so Jonah contradicts what Nahum believes to be true. But Nahum would look at the author of Jonah and say, you have never had to suffer at the hands of the Assyrian Empire. You don't know what we felt because we're still living with the people who have had to bury their sons and daughters because of the cruelty of Nineveh. So I must tell you that I empathize with both Nahum's point of view and the author of Jonah's point of view. 
I empathize with both of them because I think they're both valuable and they contribute to a very nuanced discussion revolving around how we participate in national forgiveness when we are attacked. Unfortunately, this conversation does not happen, nor is it acknowledged by the Christian community in America today. Think about what happened shortly after the attacks on September 11. Christians did not respond by saying, well, should we be more like Jonah? Or should we be more like Nahum in this moment? No Christians that I know ask the question, what does the Bible say about national forgiveness and how to participate in it? Instead, we just responded with bombs. And we responded with these bombs because we have refused to acknowledge the heart of the inspiration behind these two very important books. And instead, what's happened is that Christians have taken the story of Jonah and the fish and turned it into Jonah and the whale. And they've said, we need to know if you believe that this miracle occurred, literally and historically. Because if you do, you can be part of the club. And if you don't, well, then I'm not making any promises about your eternal salvation. And what's crazy to me is that that theological idea that you need to believe in Jonah being swallowed by a whale to get into heaven is the very theology that the book of Jonah was written to specifically undermine. According to the author of Jonah, God is not the God of some. God is the God of all. And when we say God doesn't love them, the author of Jonah would say, that's the whole point. God loves them as much as God loves us. And this whole idea that some go to heaven and some go to hell is counterintuitive to the idea that God is God of all. Now, when Christians hear that perhaps maybe God is the God of all and God will save all humanity and not just some at the end of time, Christians have a meltdown. And this meltdown is very similar to the meltdown that Jonah has at the end of the book of Jonah. Christians are the prophet Jonah in this story. Upon hearing that people outside their own tribe are loved by God. And just like Jonah, Christians have a visceral reaction opposing the idea that God could possibly save all of humanity, which raises the question that we have to ask. Why are we so afraid of a merciful God? Why are we so afraid of a God who would show mercy, kindness, compassion, and empathy toward our enemies? And the reason I believe that we feel this way and we have this fear toward a merciful God is because you and I carry a lot of pain, heartache, and loss. And we have this sense that there should be some justice to the open wounds that we are currently carrying. And when it comes to this idea of forgiveness, I will tell you that the most difficult thing to do in all of our Christian faith is the ability to forgive those who have wronged us. But at the same time, 
The reason that we believe it is so important to forgive as part of the Christian journey is because we believe that God is not the God of some, but instead that God is God of all. And if we believe in that God, the universal God, then that God will always lead us back to the road of forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is an important word for us to talk about because forgiveness is not an endorsement or an acceptance of the wrong that has been done to us. Forgiveness is not the absence of justice. Forgiveness is not a restored relationship where you are inviting your enemy over for dinner every night. Instead, forgiveness is the ability to let go of our anger. Forgiveness is our ability to allow suffering to be our greatest teacher and to use our pain to create a more loving reality going forward. Forgiveness is always a personal endeavor and requires creativity, empathy, and listening in order to bring about a more loving reality. My brothers, my sisters, and my friends, forgiveness is a difficult thing to talk about, but I believe that forgiveness is the measure of our faith. And the stories of Nahum and Jonah show us how nuanced this conversation and this practice needs to be in order for us to move forward. But how we are able to forgive and how we are able to teach others how to forgive is the full measure of our faith. Because we believe that God is God of all. And that no matter how difficult it is to forgive another, we believe that God is always found on the road to forgiveness. May we be forgiving people. And may others see our dedication to Christ in the action of our forgiveness. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.